0: Genesis 29, beginning in verse 1, and we are right in the middle of the book of Genesis and looking at the life of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham to whom the covenant promises were given, and as Jacob has most recently had that incredible vision and that conversion experience in Bethel in chapter 28, uh, he is now moving on following his mother's advice to go and find a wife from Their people, as he has been uh, hated by his brother Esau and has been driven away from his home, Jacob now goes further on his journey. And now Moses writes Then Jacob went on the journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone. From the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came nearer and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard... The news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, surely you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing, tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters, the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak or soft. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go in to her, for my time is complete. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah and his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Behold, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard. That I am hated. He has also given me the son again, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures. Forever, well, as we come to another Mother's Day and we love to honor our mothers, and we who grew up in homes with godly mothers, especially and faithful mothers, and who grew up in healthy homes and in homes that were safe places and nurturing places, we we well up with gratitude to God for the gift of mothers. Um, but there are always those homes where there is not that gratitude. There are homes of barrenness, there are homes of broken marriages, there are homes with widows and those women who have lost their children, and there are those homes where it is grievous every time Mother's Day comes around. I have a very close friend who was barren for years, struggled with infertility, and it was a burden to her to see mothers honored every Mother's Day at church. And as I've thought about Mother's Day and I've thought about um, our own recognition and gratitude to God for the mothers he's given us, and and as we in God's providence are in Genesis 29, I thought, wow, what better place to go on Mother's Day than Genesis 29? Here's a home that would not be delighted to celebrate Mother's Day Here is the covenant family. Here are the people of God. Here is Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, getting deceived, getting deceived in marriage, getting deceived by not being able to have children with the woman that he has loved in the flesh. And God overseeing and orchestrating in his providence everything that he's doing in Jacob's other wife's life and everything in this chapter is so convoluted. There have been um, many theologians that have said Genesis 29, and I felt this painfully in preparation, is one of the more difficult chapters to preach in the Bible. It, there, you feel like there's not a center to what's happening. You feel, uh, as Travis said to me this morning, you're, getting, you're not getting a softball. You're getting one of the worst curveballs. Uh, it is it is a chapter laden with difficulty and laden with with twists and turns and and you're left wondering what is the overarching point of Genesis 29? What is God doing in Jacob's life? What is God doing through Laban deceiving Jacob? What is God doing in giving children to Leah and not to Rachel? And as we ask those questions and we begin to see Genesis 29 against the background of what we've looked at from God's call of Abraham in Genesis 12, and most recently to the background of God revealing himself to Jacob in chapter 28, we see that God is juxtaposing for us a a very important period of Jacob's life. God is doing something very significant with Jacob. Now, we have seen... As I've said already, most recently, that God has wondrously appeared to Jacob, and he has, in a sense, rent the heavens, and he has dropped that ladder that we saw so clearly was a type of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and that he has said to Jacob, I am reconciling you to myself. I am giving you a staircase to glory. I am showing you the way back into my presence. I am making myself known to you. And you would think, as has happened to many of us, as God has invaded our lives and he has revealed himself to us, you would think that Jacob would be a spiritually strong and mature man already at this point. But nothing is further than the truth. And we're going to see this morning three things as we look at Genesis 29. First, we're going to consider the prayerlessness of Jacob, and then we're going to consider the providence of God. And then we're going to consider the provision of God, the prayerlessness, the providence, and the provision. We'll notice that as Moses gives us this story, he is telling us about the sad plight of Jacob. And I think it's bound up in those opening words when he says, Here, Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the East. Now, if you have been with us for any length of time through this series in Genesis, you would know that the East is not a felicitous place In the early chapters of the Bible, remember Adam and Eve are driven east of Eden. They are exiled away from the presence of God. And then Cain, we're told, is driven east after killing Abel. He is further driven away from the presence of God. And the further east they move in the book of Genesis, the further away from God is the intimation. Lot lifted his eyes and he saw the land to the east. Well watered, and he chose for himself the best places, and he went east. And it never turns out well for anyone in the book of Genesis who is heading east. And here Jacob is heading east. He has had this incredible experience, this incredible revelation of God. He has had this incredible life-changing, heart-changing, regenerating experience. And it's as if he's forgotten. Now, remember, Jacob is following the instruction of his mother. Yet another Mother's Day illustration for us he is obeying his mother who has said go away go back to our people and get a wife don't take a wife from the pagan women of the land and jacob is going and he's following his mother's instructions but here's the important thing he is not trusting the lord now nobody can read this chapter without having your mind drawn back to chapter 24 where abraham sent his servant to find a wife for isaac There are those striking parallels. They both find their bride coming to the well. And and they are coming from the same family and the same household. And there are these striking parallels. And yet there is this striking contrast, isn't there? When Abraham sent his servant, Eliezer of Damascus, to get a bride for... Isaac, his son, remember all along the way, Eliezer is praying. He is saying, Lord, guide, direct, please show me who it is that you would have your servant bring back to his master to be the bride of his master's son. And, and he praises God and he worships God and he is praying at every step of the way. In contrast, Jacob is not praying at all. Jacob is moving forward in his own strength in his own wisdom, he is, he is in a very real sense forgetting the promises of God, forgetting the experience of Bethel in chapter 28. So soon after, this amazing experience where God so powerfully reveals himself and he is acting in the flesh. Now I think there is a huge lesson for us there. It is not only altogether possible, it is often usually the case In our lives, as it was with Jacob, that after God has revealed himself in unique and special ways to us through the gospel, in the scriptures, most often in worship, we go and then we go on the rest of the week in the flesh. Prayerlessness, worry, anxiety, fretting, walking by sight, not by faith. That's the picture of Jacob in Genesis 29. He is walking by sight, not by faith. And everything that unfolds in this chapter is a warning to us of what believers can expect. Jacob is a believer. God's blessing is resting on Jacob. We're going to see how large God's blessing is to Jacob. And yet Jacob is a weak and sinful man. And he is now taking matters into his own hands. You'll notice that that sort of resurfaces through the entirety of the chapter as Jacob goes and he comes and, and he, he even sees God's guiding hand when he comes and there are shepherds there and he asks where they're from and they're from the very place he's heading to, Haran, and they're from the very area where his uncle is to whom he's going and they know his uncle and they know the condition of his uncle and instead of stopping and falling and worshiping God and saying, Lord, guide and direct, and show me what you want, he just continues on prayerlessly and continues on in the arm of the flesh. That is, by the way, the contrast in the book of Genesis everywhere. It is either relying on the promises of God, the grace of God, walking by faith in Jesus Christ, or it is taking matters into our own fleshly hands. Remember, Abraham constantly did that. He did it by taking Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, to himself in order to try to fulfill the promises. Here Jacob is acting the same way. He is just continuing on. And when he sees Rachel, he, we, we see something. And this is the marvelous thing about this chapter, because you may be one of those ro- romantic types that think that this is really a romantic chapter. It's really not. It, it really shows the shallowness of Jacob. It, it's not romantic. Um, we want it to be romantic. Love at first sight. He doesn't care about Rachel's character. He doesn't care whether she's godly. He wants a trophy wife. And he sees her and he judges by his eyes. And he doesn't ask one thing about her. He doesn't have any spiritual conversation with her. He acts impulsively based on what he sees. And he reaps the awful consequences of that. Rachel will be an idolater, you'll see actually later on. You'll see what a worldly woman she was. When they are leaving, she takes the household idols with her. Um, this is not a model romantic story. It's actually a very sad and disheartening story. And and what the Lord is telling us and warning us with this is that, you know, when we live our lives, and all of us do this to, to, to great an extent, uh, Mark mentioned that this morning in the reading of the law that, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. And we take the better part of our lives into our own hands, and we try to manage it. And then we try to guide the outcome, and we try to act in the flesh to accomplish what we want for security or safety. You know, Jacob really, he's really looking for redemption. It's very interesting. Jacob's looking for redemption in Rachel. He's lost everything. He'll never see his mother again. He'll never see her again. He won't see Esau for 20-some years. He he will not see his father until the end of his father's life. He has had everything ripped away. He's been the rejected son because he has stolen the birthright and ap- acted duplicitously. And now he is, in a sense, looking for redemption in circumstances. Here is the bride that will complete me. Here is the one that will make my life better. Um. There's a word there because whenever we act, whenever in our lives we think this job or this event or this person will make me happy, this spouse will make me happy, if this was just what it should be, my life will be fine. And you know, the the really sad thing is we can know that and we can say that, but when that's a reality in our lives, we're often blind to it and we won't see that's really what's going on inside us that I'm really trying to find satisfaction. It's interesting. You're going to find Leah doing the same thing at the end of this chapter. She is looking for redemption in Jacob. She names her three sons in accord with her desire for him to desire her. Now, behind Jacob's prayerlessness, and one of the wonderful things about this chapter, is there is God's providence. Even when the saints are living in fleshly uh prayerlessness and trying to take their lives into their own hands if god has set them apart for himself god is still fulfilling his plans in their lives for their good and you see that even as jacob's going he does meet rachel and and he does see god's providential hand in bringing each person to that well and then even in Laban's reception of Jacob, you see God's providence. God has orchestrated everything that's happening at that well. And everything that will happen subsequently in Jacob's life, irrespective of what Jacob is doing. Now that, that is the marvelous big bird's eye view point of Genesis 29. Isn't it wonderful if you're a believer that your life is not in your hands, with regard to the blessing of God. That's wonderful. Um, I think we all tend to um, to read God's blessing based on how um, how good things are going in our lives, and and we know that, and we know that we know that, and then we still do it. And um, nothing's going to go good for Jacob from this point on till. Chapter 34, when he wrestles with God and learns what it is to wrestle in prayer. But, but his life is going to be hard, and it's going to be a decade and a half of hard service for his uncle. Now, what's going on with Laban? Because we've seen Laban before. Remember, Laban was the, uh, the brother of Rebekah who married Isaac. Who, when uh, Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for his son Laban, remember saw the jewelry. He saw the opportunity, and he was happy to hand his sister over to go with Isaac because he saw that he could benefit personally. Laban, by the way, Laban is the only person in the Book of Genesis more deceitful than Jacob. And and when Laban says to Jacob, "You are my flesh and my bone," here you almost hear a double entendre. You almost hear him, in a sense, saying, you are more part of what we are like than what your own family is like. Because remember, Jacob's deception came on the heels of his mother's instruction, telling him to deceive his father for the blessing and to steal the birthright. But notice, just notice how deceitful Laban is Uh, Laban sees Jacob and he sees Jacob's strength there's this well and you might think of it more like a a a large holding cistern for water not a well that you would dredge but more of a water holding cistern with a large stone rolled over it and Jacob comes and the shepherds are not able to do it and and Jacob with his uh, romantic superhuman strength is able to move that stone to impress Rachel. I think that's the intention of the passage. And, and that's impressive. This was not like Jacob. Jacob was the weak one. Jacob was the mama's boy. Jacob loved Mother's Day. And he loved to cook for his mother on Mother's Day. And here, Jacob is more like Esau. Jacob has gained some virility and some strength. And that word has gone to Laban. And Laban, no doubt, is thinking... I can benefit from this one who has come here for a bride. And it's interesting that in their interactions, what what we see, and this is the point of God's providence here, is that God is chastening Jacob for what he did. God's sovereignty in this chapter highlights the fact that God is chastening and disciplining Jacob. He is dealing with Jacob As Jacob had dealt with his own family you know I I think there's something to this in the Bible Uh, in Galatians the Apostle Paul says don't be deceived what a man sows that will he also reap and um, and you see that in the scriptures you see King David um, taking Bathsheba to be his wife who belonged to another man and God killing the fruit of their union the child And then David putting Uriah on the front line, and God sending the sword into David's family. And then David numbering the people, and God cutting the people back with a plague. You see, the punishment fits the crime. The chastening, the discipline is commensurate with the sin. And it's fitting then, isn't it, that Laban would look at Jacob and he would pull off a magnificent act of deceit, in order to subject Jacob to himself, instead of saying, you're my family, come, let's feast. And, and instead of Jacob walking by faith and saying, I have met with the God of Abraham and the God of my father, Isaac. And he has told me that the promises are vouchsafed to me. Instead of saying, I must have a wife and return home to my people. Jacob allows himself to be deceived and put to servile labor in his uncle's house. And his uncle does it masterfully. You almost get the sense when you're reading Genesis 29 that Laban pulled something off so much more sophisticated than Jacob had pulled off. Jacob had deceived his father into thinking he was the hairy, manly son. Laban is the master. You want Laban on your side when you want to buy some property. Laban knows exactly what to say, exactly how to say it, Exactly how to get his way. Notice when Jacob comes to him, and and he he obviously loves Rachel, and he's kissed Rachel, and and notice what Laban says because Jacob then goes to work for him, and and um, Laban says to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what should your wages be, and and that was the first part of the deception. He never should have said what should your wages be. He should have said. You are so kind to come here and to labor and to help us. And Jacob falls into the deception, and he tells her that he wants to marry Rachel. He said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any man. Stay with me. Now, commentators make a big deal here that... Laban never mentions Rachel. He never says, it's better that I give Rachel to you that you serve me. He says, her. He speaks, by the way, if anybody wants to con you, note how often they speak in generalities. Con artists are great at generalities. They never get specific. Jacob, by the way should have been suspect about Laban. There's a little lesson here. In the midst of the chastening, in the midst of Laban deceiving Jacob, we, we would do well to take away from this that, you know, Jacob should have been distrustful of Laban. He should have tried to get to know Laban. That's one of the things the Bible often tells us is that we are to be discerning people. And that means we're not to just trust anyone, irrespective of who they are or what they're saying. I, I, for years, have said, you know, the Bible tells us to love your neighbor as yourself, not to trust your neighbor as yourself. I think if there's anything we've learned in Genesis, it is don't trust yourself, don't trust your neighbor as yourself, walk wisely, walk in faith, walk in humility. Well, God is breaking Jacob down. He is bringing Jacob, in a very real sense, out into a wilderness experience prior to teaching him what it is to wrestle with him in prayer. This is Jacob's decade and a half in the wilderness. It's, it's a prelude to Israel's wilderness experience. God is teaching Jacob about his sinfulness and about his need for brokenness. You know, our Westminster Confession has this great statement that God often, and I'm paraphrasing, God often allows the saints to fall into particular sins and for a time to remain under them, to humble them, to test them and to make them see their need for the Lord and to cry out to him more. That's what God's doing with Jacob. He's making him feel the burden. And when Jacob finally comes to that wedding night and says, Give me my wife, that I may know her. I have served you for seven years. Now it's my time to receive the benefits. And Laban has pulled off this sophisticated plan. How in the world? Laban got Leah to participate. Rachel to participate. You can only imagine how Laban must have threatened these daughters to do exactly what he told them in putting Leah in the place of Rachel in deceiving Jacob. Now, one does wonder, and you have to ask this question one does wonder how Jacob didn't realize that he was going in to sleep with Leah on this wedding night. And, you know, it was a long seven years. He was anxious to be with his wife. She was veiled through the whole ceremony. There was a lot of alcohol, I'm sure. I'm sure of that. And lo and behold, Jacob wakes up the next morning, and it was Leah. It was not Rachel. Um, Jacob then obviously serves Laban another seven years. He still hasn't learned the lesson. He should have said... At that point, I'll take Leah, and I'll go back to my people. But Jacob is driven by his fleshly desire for Rachel, and he bargains again with Laban. Laban is the one that wins in all these things. Now two of his daughters are being brought into the covenant family, kept in the covenant family. He's gotten uh, 14 years of hard labor out of Jacob, and we're told that Jacob finally went into Rachel and the end result was that he loved Rachel and essentially he despised Leah now there is a provision that happens in this chapter in the third place and it's fascinating because because you see God's providential hand just weaving together all the events of Jacob's life just like he does in our lives just like he does in our homes and our families and our children and as he weaves together this, this account, we see that Leah again is exactly like Jacob. She she wants to find fulfillment in her spouse. She wants to find fulfillment in children. You know, I have a friend who noted that having children is one of the greatest blessings ever, but when women try to find fulfillment in that, that's idolatry. You no, know, it was idolatry for Jacob to long for Rachel the way that he did and to pursue her the way in which he did. It shows that she had become an idol. And for Leah, he had become an idol. And the children became an idol. The children issue will become idolatry for Rachel in the next chapter. You see just how much the sinful heart can latch on to things that are in and of themselves good and then make them ultimate and then give all their strength and then to be let down and frustrated by it. I'll never forget a story I heard about uh, Keith Richards um, on a radio show in Las Vegas and, and the man interviewing him was saying man you've had such an amazing life and all this fame and money and travel and women and it's been amazing and, and I mean how does it feel to be Keith Richards and Richards said you know well we meant what we said in can't get no satisfaction and um, and this, this radio host said, no, 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 but I mean, come on, all the experiences and all of that, and and Richard said, no, I mean, you're not listening to me. We meant what we said in that. And in a very real sense, what you see in this chapter is that there is no ultimate satisfaction in a spouse. There is no ultimate satisfaction in children. There is no ultimate satisfaction in parents, That that what it means to be a godly husband, a godly mother godly children, godly parents, is that Jesus Christ is at the center. And God is going to teach that to Leah. He's going to teach his mysterious providential plan. Leah has these three sons, and these sons she names with respect to the desire for her husband. Now maybe he will see me because she was unattractive. She didn't have the exotic eyes. She didn't have the physical beauty of her sister. Now maybe my husband will see me and will desire beauty in me. Now maybe he will hear me. Now maybe he will cleave to me. And then something happens. And this is one of the most wonderful things in the Bible. At the end of chapter 29, we're told that Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise Lord and she called his name Judah praise Yahweh Judah and in in that statement we realize that Leah has undergone something of a spiritual restoration um, you know the Lord loved Leah Jacob loved Rachel the Lord loved Leah that's pretty much what the passage says um we're never really told much of anything about Rachel's relationship with the Lord in any kind of um, meaningful way, but, but we're told that the Lord looked on the despised one. He looked on the outcast. I love this statement. I have to read this to you. Um, Tim Keller in a sermon on this passage said, God had come to the girl that nobody wanted, the unloved, and made her the mother of Jesus. Not beautiful Rachel, but the homely one, the unwanted one, the unloved one. He says, why did God do that? Does he just like the underdog? He did it because of his person and his work. First, he did it because of his person. It says that when Leah saw when the Lord saw Leah was not loved, he loved her. God said, I am the real bridegroom. I am the husband of the husbandless. I am the father of the fatherless. He Binds himself to the people that the world is not attracted to. He loves the unwanted. He loves the unattracted. He loves the weak, the one who the world doesn't want to be like. God says, if nobody else is going to be Leah's spouse, I will be her spouse. And then, listen to this. He says the second reason why he goes after Leah and not Rachel is that she is going to be the mother of Jesus, the bearer of the messianic line. This is no small point jesus is the lion of the tribe of judah jesus descends from leah not from rachel keller says why did jesus become leah's son why did he become the man nobody wanted for you and for me this is the gospel god did not save us in spite of the weakness that he experienced as a human being but through it and you don't actually get that salvation into your life through your strength, it's only when you admit that you're weak. Now, this is, this is the big point that we are to take away from this passage. If we take anything away this morning, you and me are spiritual Leas. In and of ourselves, we are unlovely. In and of ourselves, we are often full of desperation. We are full of weakness, and we need a Redeemer to love us. We need the God of heaven to love us in order to turn our hearts and to wean our hearts away from this world and to say, I will praise the Lord. I have a friend in the PCA. She is uh, probably in her late 40s or early 50s now, and she was converted probably in her 50s. She was converted at 40, and she wrote me this uh, just recently about this passage. She said, you know, it's amazing to me that God is saying, I am the real bridegroom. I'm the husband of the husbandless. I'm the father of the fatherless. She said, "What does that mean?" It means everything. She wrote me this. I am Leah. I'm the sinful woman in Luke 7. I am the woman at the well, hiding from the town's women in shame. I was thrown away by the world for 40 years. When it really came home that Jesus would never decide like everyone else had that I was too burdensome to deal with, too much trouble. And to throw in the towel, well, that did it. He is my rock. Now, we are meant to see God's mercy and grace to Jacob in chastening him, in teaching him the consequences of his sins so that he might grow in faith. We are meant to be warned in this passage about trusting in the arm of flesh and walking by sight and laying up treasures on earth and just acting in the flesh based on what our eyes see but we are also to see that as unworthy as we are and you are so unworthy and i am so unworthy god doesn't look at me and say look how beautiful you are he sees all my sin he sees all my failings he sees me trying to find satisfaction in created things And he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have sent my son to die for you. The son has said, I will be the bridegroom. This is the whole point of Jesus coming to Jacob's well. You know that. In John 4, when Jesus, the Savior, comes to Jacob's well, this well, and he sits by the well with the woman of Samaria, and he reveals himself to her. He is saying, I am the heavenly bridegroom. And until you find rest for your souls in me, Your life will look exactly like the turmoil and chaos and disruption and servitude found in this chapter leading up to that. Um, I am sure on this Mother's Day, as we reflect on our own mothers and our own parenting and our own relationships and our marriages and all of those things... I am certain that there is plenty that we can see in our lives that is twisted and that is, that is skewed and that is not what we wish it was. And I want to say this this morning. Listen very carefully to me. No amount of money will ever change that. I, I have been burdened recently in, in conversations that I've heard by believers and listening to what believers talk about to realize m- the better part of suburban America thinks that they can fix everything with money and it will fix nothing. It is exactly like Jacob acting out of the desires of his sight. And the only thing that will fix anything is seeing that God has provided the Redeemer, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, the Heavenly Bridegroom who weds himself to us, who loves us though we are unlovely. And it's resting in that And what happens, and I'll close with this thought, when we actually get to that place and we realize that Jesus Christ should be at the center of our marriages, and Jesus Christ needs to be at the center of our parenting, and Jesus Christ needs to be at the center of our ambitions and our relationships and every single facet of our life, things start to go well, even when they go differently than we would have them go. Jacob would have had Rachel have the children, God had Leah. And from Leah came the Redeemer. You see, God is always calling us to trust him so that he would work out his plan for his glory, for our redemption and good in our lives. Now, I'm going to close with this. You've got to trust the Lord. It means learning to live a life of prayer. It means learning to live a life of worship, not putting everything else before worship. One of my best friends wrote, Burke Parsons, um, wrote on his Twitter feed yesterday, if you are constantly coming up with excuses not to be in worship, not to be praying with the people of God, when you appear before God, you'll run out of excuses. Won't be any more excuses to hold forth. Um, My hope and prayer for all of us, starting with myself, is that the Lord would work in us the same grace he worked in Jacob, the same grace he showed toward Leah, and that we would learn to trust him, and that we would learn to be satisfied in him, and call on him, and live in faith and independence on him. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would revive us and restore us. We acknowledge that we are many times like Jacob, and many times prayerless, and many times, Lord, making our own plans, and setting our own ways, and setting our hearts on The things that our eyes desire and we have been chastened many times by you for our sin. And we thank you, our God, that you chasten those that you love, that as a father disciplines his children. So you, Lord, discipline those that you love, that you might conform us to the image of your son. And we thank you that you have loved us, our God. We thank you that you have set your love on us who are so full of sin and who are so unlovely in ourselves. We pray, our God, that you would do a great work of grace in our lives and in this church, in our homes, in the marriages represented here, in the the relationship between parents and children. We pray that your grace and that your son would be saturating our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.